For this week, this morning, I want to bring to your remembrance the subject of the sovereignty of God. Now, most of you probably do know what that is. The study of the sovereignty of God is not some secondary or optional or minor doctrine that can be relegated to the professional theologians, but it is something that touches every individual believer every day of our lives. It is not an obscure truth in Scripture, therefore it cannot be ignored in life. It is the highest peak of God's expression of divine power and authority. That is a huge statement. It is the expression of God's freedom and independence. It is the majestic display of the everlasting independence and His complete and utter reign over all things in all time. God's sovereignty is the magnification of His Lordship through His control and authority over every little thing. Most of us would say, yes, amen. Agree with that. God's sovereignty not only shows that He shows us that He, he is God, but it reveals His divine plan, it reveals His divine purpose, and it reveals the way that He accomplishes the things that He determined. Sovereignty displays that God does whatever He pleases, whenever He pleases, and however He pleases. Now we're hitting a nerve. Because as human beings, we don't like that. It freaks us out. We don't fully understand the great expanse of God's sovereignty. We cannot adequately comprehend it. We naturally refuse such actions in life because we don't like it. Think of a child that does what he wants, whenever she wants, however they want. That is antithetical to parental authority, right? We, we reject that kind of response from any child, which is right. They are not sovereign. In your house, you as father are the head of the home and quote-unquote the sovereign in that family. Not that little Johnny who thinks he's running the show or that little Annie who thinks she can pull the strings. Bend the reed while you can. Governments, when they do what they want, whenever they want, however they want, we reject that. Why? Because that's tyrannical. We, we don't want that kind of rule in our lives. Well, unless you're in COVID, then it's a different case. We have an innate resistant response to anything that limits our freedom. Anything. Even a child that throws, throws a tantrum and so you can't go to the beach because she wants to watch Let It Snow. <laughs> it 
Even in Christian circles, the idea of God's sovereignty is often challenged, take note, by the freedom of man. Think about that. God's absolute freedom and independence to do everything is challenged by this idea. But man has free will. How can God be sovereign over all things and man have free will at the same time? Wrong question. Wrong starting point. There is a large theological drift towards human independence, human freedom, even amongst conservative evangelicals. We honor and exalt man's freedom over against the sovereignty of God. In charismatic circles, we are told that, quote, God cannot do anything without our permission, end quote. What? Listen to Michael Sire in his book, Does God Know the Future? He says, and I quote, Since the earth is now our area of dominion, God must have our permission before he interferes with our stewardship. This is not a situation we forced on God, but a position he brought upon himself. I'm almost feeling sick by reading it. By committing the dominion of earth to human beings, in quote. So God gave up his right over earth when he gave dominion to humanity. So if God wants to do something on earth, he's got to ask you if he can do it. Well, if that is your God, then you're not serving the God of the Bible. That is an idol created by your imagination, and that is not the sovereign God of the universe. If God has to ask permission of anyone, he ceases to be God. Another charismatic, Paul Bellheimer, says, quote, God will not go over the church's head to do things in spite of her because this would abort his plan to bring her to full stature and co-sovereign with the Son. He will therefore do nothing without her, that is the church, to this. John Wesley agrees. (laughs) Let's appeal to John Wesley. God does nothing but in answer to prayer. That is a misquotation of John Wesley's thought. But anyway, besides that, this is the movement of some charismatic circles to think that God has no power to do anything in this world because he gave dominion over to the church. And so he has to ask permission and he cannot act apart from the church. What a heresy. What a shame to think that God gave up authority. That may seem a far stretch for us conservative theologians. We are above that, right? We don't think like that. Yet we say similar things. For instance, God will never violate our free will. You know what? That is exactly the same as that crazy charismatic who said that God needs to ask our permission. 
Because it intimates that God needs to slow down when He wants to interfere in your life. He will never violate your free will as if your will is much higher and stronger than God's will. That kind of statement suggests that God is on the out looking at what you are doing. Furthermore, some say God would not choose people without their will. In other words, God looked down the annals of time and he saw that you would choose him and so he chose you. And so therefore God is sovereign because it, it predetermines, it, it, it's outside the realm of time. And so because he looked down time and foreknew that you would choose him, he then chooses you. Think about that. If God knows that you're going to choose him and chooses you based on your choice of him, who's the sovereign one? You are. Then God is responding to man's choice of him. That is not the sovereignty of God. Yet we say, I believe in the sovereignty of God. That is absolutely sovereign over all things. Yet we say that man has the freedom to do what he wants. Both can't be true, guys. Stephen Nichols, while talking about the challenge among some evangelicals in accepting the sovereignty of God, especially in salvation, says, and I quote, Sadly, there are many evangelicals who read the Bibles and they attend evangelical churches like ours and they call themselves an evangelical who stumble over this doctrine and outright find it offensive, end quote. That is true. When you hear of the sovereignty of God in electing some to salvation, it burns in your heart and you think, what an unjust God. What an unfair God to choose some and not choose others. How can I serve a God like that? What about freedom of the will? The problem is not with God's actions, God's sovereignty, and God's freedom and independence. The problem is with our understanding of God's sovereignty. We don't adequately comprehend the nature, the essence, the substance, and the scope of God's sovereignty. And so we struggle with the little graceful act. I shouldn't say little because it's tremendous. It is the overwhelming graceful act to choose some out of the Many that are on their way to a lost eternity. God does not have to choose anyone. And it would be just if he does that. He does not have to save anybody, but he does. That is an act of grace. You know how Paul responds to that? Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who chose us. At the end of chapter 9, or chapter 11, chapter 11 of, of um, Romans, he exalts God in praise. He ends with a doxology. Why? Because it is such an amazing doctrine to think that God would consider sinners, rebelling, hardened sinners such as us, that he would save somebody that hated his son. God doesn't have to save, but he chooses to save. It is his prerogative to save. Yet, you have the responsibility to believe in him. We struggle with that. How can that be? Both are 
true. In order for you to believe, God needs to call you to believe. In order for you to turn to Him, God needs to ignite the heart with the light of the gospel so that you are able to turn to Him. Without God doing it, you will never come to Him. In addition to this movement away from the sovereignty of God in evangelical circles, there is now an attack from the world, the media, upon not only the sovereignty of God, but your belief in God's absolute authority. Listen to this. A professor of religious study being interviewed Uh, by a news agency, Heidi Campbell. You don't need to know who she is because she doesn't matter much in the world of theology. Says, and I quote, There is also a kind or a general kind of theological belief in the sovereignty of God that he is the one who knows best. Smirkingly. So if you get sick, it is because you don't have faith in God. And that you're not living a holy life. So God isn't able to protect you. Hmm, Interesting. He's not able to protect you because you live a sinful life. Hmm, Have you ever read of Job? A holy and blameless man? And yet God chose him for affliction. Interesting. What about Paul? You're going to suffer much for me. What about Peter? You're going to die for me. Interesting. This is not the Christianity that uh, that is evangelical. Let me say it that way. We know that that is their own kind of thinking. But in addition to that, she says this, quote, In addition to spreading... Anti-vaccine ideology in America, this belief, take note of this, in the supreme authority of God has also affected vaccine efforts abroad. For example, a hospital in Uganda recently received 5,000 doses of vaccine, but was only able to administer about 400 doses. Here's why. Because of vaccine hesitancy among a heavily evangelical population. Did you catch that? The reason why people are not getting vaccinated is because they are Christian evangelicals who believe in the sovereignty of God. Your belief in the sovereignty of God is the reason why you don't want to get vaccinated. That is what they are saying. So because God is sovereign and we lean upon His authority, we don't want to follow the narrative and get vaccinated, which they are saying is wrong. You're being foolish. What a lie. So then, it is your belief in an almighty God which is at the heart of your anti-vaccination conviction. I mean, the two doesn't even correlate because there are unbelievers who are anti-vaxxers. This is a misstatement and a misrepresentation of the truth of the sovereignty of our God. Why? Because naturally, our sinful nature abhors the idea of God's absolute control. 
However, the reality is that if God is not in absolute control, then he ceases to be God. Think about that. If he is not in absolute control, he is not God. Because the Bible demonstrates God to be the one who's over all things all the time. We don't see the importance of his freedom and his independence to do as he pleases because of the cloud of personal freedom and our own desire to do what we want. God's supreme sovereignty is the, sovereignty is the exercise of his authority, of his administration, which accomplishes his divine purposes. God doesn't exist to do your bidding. What a lie and a heresy to think that we have to that God has to ask us permission. It's a heresy from the pits of hell. Therefore, if God is sovereign and he is, then he must be infinitely self-governing and he is, and externally governing every single detail in life. And he does. Which means that his sovereignty must be seen from creation to consummation and everything in between. Does that make sense? If God is sovereign, then he has to be the one in control of all things, whether it is a tree in the garden or the tree at the end of life. Everything works according to his will and according to his plan. And I don't know about you, but I cannot compute that. It doesn't always fit into my mind how that is possible. But it is. Note this. God is sovereign over the entire universe. He is sovereign over all of creation. He is sovereign over nature. He is sovereign over the angels and Satan. He is sovereign over nations. He is sovereign over human beings. He is sovereign over animals. He is sovereign over accidents. He's sovereign over wicked acts. He's sovereign over acts of men. He's sovereign over sinful acts of men and Satan. He's sovereign over everything. And we say, Amen. If that is true, then there is only one response. And I will show that to you at the end of the sermon. Understand that apart from the sovereignty of God, there is no guarantee of a future. If God exists and he cannot predict the future and bring it to, to fruition, he's not God. Why do I say that? Because he claims to know the end from the beginning. And then he uses prophecy to show to his people that he's the one who actually determines the outcome. And I want you to rest on that. God determines the outcome. I'm going to get back to that with the life of Joseph. A God who has even one atom, one molecule. What is the smallest element in life? Is it an atom? I don't know, I don't need science. Yes, it's an atom. Electron. 
quantum electron. Does it exist? I don't know. Let's call it a quantum electron. <laughs> if there's one electron that is running out of control, if there's one stardust that decides to go left when God thinks it should go right, then God ceases to be sovereign. Consider that on the minuscule level. If there's any microscopic thing that we don't know about that runs amok, that does its own thing without God, God ceases to be in control. If COVID is running out of control, God ceases to be in control. If cancer, HIV, TB, or your affliction is out of control, beyond God's control, beyond His knowledge, and He's surprised by what is happening, God ceases to be God. Romans 11.36 For from Him, through Him, and to Him, are all things. End of discussion. From him, through him, and to him. Everything. Everything. From cancer to COVID. From creation to consummation. Everything comes from him. Yet, the application of this reality that we say amen to is anemic. If everything comes from Him, then should we not receive everything from Him? Shall we only receive good from the hand of God and not evil or calamity as Job says? If everything comes from Him, then everything exists for Him. And Revelation gives insight to this. Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. This is why things exist for God's pleasure. And some of you are suffering because of some ailment. And I don't want to minimize the fact that you are suffering. But it exists for God's pleasure. And we think, how? How is that possible? How can my suffering be for the pleasure of God? You know why we don't understand it? Because we see the immediate situation. We don't see the end. We don't see the ultimate outcome. God does. And because He knows the end... He can say that it is for his pleasure because he determines it for his pleasure. Doesn't matter what it is. He is worthy of glory and honor and power, not only because of who he is, but because of what he does. In other words, everything exists for a reason. Good and evil exists because it is a necessary part of God's plan. We don't understand that fully. We don't. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter how long you've been saved. We don't fully understand how evil can be part of God's plan. Let me give you a little insight. Somebody's asked this question. Why did God put the tree in the garden? 
Wrong question. Why? Because God put the tree in the garden. End of a question. Does it answer it? It does. God put it there because he knew that in order for the son to be exalted, in order for the son to be born of flesh and blood, there needed to be a fall. Without the tree, there is no fall. Without the fall, there is no savior. Without no savior, there is no exaltation. Without the exaltation of the son, there is no you worshiping him in glory. Why did God put the tree in the garden? For the exaltation of his son. Yet the tree brings forth evil. How on earth does God remain sovereign if that is true? Because he's God. Nothing that happened from that moment up till today has ever been outside the plan and the sovereign control of God. That brings comfort to my heart. If God is sovereign, and he is, then he needs to be sovereign over evil as well. And he is. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 3 says this, quote, God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever come to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of his creatures, nor is the liberty of or con- contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. And I know you're going to think, I don't fully understand that. But that's okay. What they are saying is that from creation to consummation, there is an undeniable, incontrovertible demonstration of God's absolute control over every detail of life. Every detail of life. What does the psalmist say? Man may plan his way, but God determines the outcome. You can plan all you want, but the outcome has already been determined by God. Now, what is the sovereignty of God? I've given you a lot of general aspects. And to do justice to this discussion, which I don't think I will because it's so vast, I'm going to deal with it in two ways. First of all, I'm going to give you a definition very briefly of the sovereignty of God. And I'm going to look at two particular areas in which the sovereignty of God is demonstrated. So first, let's define God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty relates particularly uh, uh, to two realities. One, his decrees, and second, his control and authority. I put those two together because they deal with one thing. Yet they are subcategories of his decrees. As with all aspects of God's perfections, there's overlap with other aspects of God's perfections. And so I did not remove God's decrees from his sovereignty. In fact, I remember my theology professor dealt with the sovereignty of God underneath the decrees of God. I do it the other way around. I think the sovereignty of God is demonstrated in the decrees of God. So this will lay the foundation for our understanding of the extent and the force of the sovereignty of God 
to the detail of his sovereignty in everyday life. Understandably, I do need to fly over some aspects of it, and hopefully on Wednesday we can unpack a little bit more of it, but for now we are going to touch the tip of the peak of the iceberg. We're not going to be able to go through much of it. So strap on your boots. We're going to be flying at, what is it, 10,000 miles? What, 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 what is the elevation? 3,000 miles. <laughs> Do you pick it? Yes. We're going to fly high. We'll come down in Psalm 93. So what is God's sovereignty first? We could say that he's simply that attribute of God whereby he perfectly and completely rules over all that he has made. That is the most simple definition of the sovereignty of God. It's that absolute and complete rule over everything he has made. And yet at the same time, when I read this, I thought, that falls short of the actuality of God's sovereignty. Why? I will answer that in a moment's time. This is commonly when, what we think of when we think of sovereignty. God's unmatched, free, absolute control. The supreme ruler over everything he has made. But it is more than that. Why? Because I don't like the phrase, what he has made. To It kind of limits what God is sovereign over. And obviously, logically, God is in control of everything that exists. But let's think about this. Go to Genesis chapter 1. I want you to think about why the Bible starts where it starts. Take note at chapter 1, verse 1 and, and through to 3. In the beginning, God, you should not be paging anymore. You should be there. As Genesis, come on. <laughs> The first book of the Bible, page 1 or page 3 in some of your books. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. Hang on! How on earth do we go to in the beginning and then there was heaven and earth? How did you get there? It doesn't tell us that. It doesn't. It just says in the beginning, God created. Think. Slow down. Think about that. The heaven and earth didn't exist up till this point in time. And I know there are those smarty pan theologians thinking, where was God? And was there light where he was? Really? It's not even up for discussion. Anyway, get back to proper theology. It doesn't tell us how he made the heavens and the earth. Later, progressive revelation does. He spoke and it came into being. Now, look at the next line in verse 3. It gives us an indication how verse 1 and 2 came into being. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. No, that's not possible. God said, 
let there be that which constitutes the wavelength of light. In fact, it is written in such a way that it gives the expression, there must be and there was. Does that make sense? There must be that thing which causes light to exist. And there was light. The very thing that causes light to be does not exist yet. This is why I think sovereignty goes beyond the things that God just created. Think about this. Before that which makes the heaven and the earth, the heaven and the earth, that which make light, light, before they exist, the things that causes them to exist has to listen to God and respond and cause them to be. Which means God is sovereign over things that don't even exist. Does it make sense? Doesn't. Boom. Blows my mind. I don't get that. How can that which causes the wavelengths of light to exist obey God? Because God speaks on the subatomic level. Level. Not level. Level. Things that don't exist yet. He tells it, come into being. And they that don't exist have to obey and come into being, create the thing that God desires to be created and it exists. Everything together at once and boom, there is light. You know, the evolutionists believe the same thing. Billions of years ago, there was nothing and then boom, there was something that just blew out Everything in the universe, the only thing that is different is that one is God and one is nothing. So you can have your faith in your nothingness. We can have faith in a God that made everything out of nothingness. It is the same thing. It is faith in something or someone. Augustine called this the divine imperative, the fiat creation of God, the out-of-nothing creation of God. Believers, that is awesome. Everything that needed to exist to make a human being from dust was spoken into existence. Now, for you sci-fi people... That goes levels above your head and you're like, impossible. For you science people, you're going to say, but matter can't come from nowhere. Uh, Tell the scientists who believe in the Big Bang that. Scientifically, it is true that you cannot create matter or destroy matter. Right? Energy has got to be transferred. Something has come from something. Yet, Nothing causes something. It is true in the case of God. Nothing existed. Nothing existed. The very elements that makes light did not exist. Then God said, light must exist. And anything and everything that needs to constitute the existence of light comes into being at that point in time. That is the greatness of our God. Thus, God laid down the building blocks of life in the beginning. You know what? NASA 
says that life, the very building blocks from life or of life, comes from stardust. I read one guy in an evolutionary book that it, it grew on the, 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 the back of crystals, um, which is um, on the back of a big, was it tortoise or uh, skullpat up in the heavens? Yeah. No, NASA. It didn't come from stardust. God decreed it and it came into being. In other words, things that don't exist yet have to obey the voice of God. That is the sovereignty of God. It's not just over the things that he has made. Because he has power even over death. How is he able to have power over death? Because he created death. How did he create death? By putting the tree in the garden. This is your God. This God calls you to be his child. This God chose the nation of Israel to be his people. This God has absolute control over every element in life. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that he upholds, is it verse 3? I think it's verse 3. He upholds the entire universe by the word of his power. Nothing will spiral out of control ever because God is in control. The Bible presents from chapter 1 the supreme omnipotence of God over everything, period. Don't add the qualification that exists over everything. It is not happens chance that the first book in the Bible begins with God's creation. <clears throat> Doesn't just happen that way. That the the story of how things began starts with God's power and sovereignty. Why? Because God's sovereignty is the execution of his kingship and lordship through his decretive power over all things. Does that make sense? What God decrees will come into being. Why? Because he's sovereign. God is sovereign because he has the ability to decree everything that needs to exist. A.W. Pink, which I'm reading now, there's two books that I'm reading, Sovereignty of God and the Attributes of God. It's excellent books. Pick it up. Immerse your heart in the knowledge of God because in times like these, what do you fall back on? When affliction comes, what do you fall back on? I hope it is knowledge of God. Pink says, and I quote, <clears throat> What do we mean by sovereignty of God? We mean the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the Godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the Most High, doing according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, so that nothing and no one can stay His hand or say, What hast thou done? To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and on earth. 
so that none can defeat his counsels, thwart his purpose, or resist his will. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the governor amongst the nations. Set up kingdoms, overthrows armies or empires, and determining the cause of dynasties as pleaseth him, end quote. God does as he chooses to do uncontested. That is what the sovereignty of God means. Psalm 135, whatever Yahweh pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. All that he pleases, he does. It is not the same to say, and which is also true, that he does all that pleases him. That is true. That's a true statement. But he says, Yahweh pleases. What Yahweh pleases, all that the Lord pleases, he does. In other words, he's free to do whatever he wants. The psalmist here shows forth the absolute freedom and unchallenged power of the sovereign God. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Whatever he pleases or whatever pleases him, this he will accomplish. This means that all the decrees of God will come to fruition. There is nothing that God has decreed that he will not keep. Again, to those covenantal friends of mine, think about that. If he is decreed, he is bound to keep it. Why? Because he swears by himself in that decree. Psalm 33 verse 11. <clears throat> Let me just pause here. The, the word decree doesn't often... It's not often translated in that way, but it does pop up in a variety of different ways, especially in poetic literature in the Old Testament. Two ways in which you can see it is counsel and purpose. For instance, in Psalm 33 verse 11, the counsel or the decree of Yahweh stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Is that a wake-up call? The counsel of the Lord, the decree of the Lord, will stand forever. Why? Because the, plan, um, the plans are, are of his heart to all generations. Because he's committed himself to it. Which means, if he's decreed it, if he's planned it, if he's counseled it, it has to come to be. Many of the plans are, are, are in the mind of a man, Proverbs 19.21, but it is the decree, the purpose of the Lord that will stand. What he has decreed for your life will come to be. Plan all you want, his decree will stand. Wow. The detail and the particularity of God's sovereignty is both comforting and scary. Comforting in the reality that he covers all things, all time. Scared in the fact that he knows all things from all time. Psalm 139 verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. 
in your book were written, take note of this, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. You can't translate it any other way. The days that were determined for me were already written down in the books. When as yet there was none of them. Before I started living, the outcome was already determined. Now we're starting to turn. How is that possible? One more confirmation of the absolute freedom of God is to accomplish his divine decrees. Isaiah 37, 26. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruin. Understand what God is saying. I determined it, you brought it about. I determined that you would overcome these cities, that they should be brought to ruin. You fulfilled that. God determined the fall, and Israel fulfilled God's plan. Nothing that God determines will ever fail. Even the promises of God to Israel. How do I know that? Hebrews chapter 6, 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose... He guaranteed it with an oath. To show that he is one who who commits to what he promises... He gave an oath to say that I promise by myself that I will bring it about. You will get a land and you will get a nation. God swears by himself because he holds himself accountable to keep every promise that he has made. So God's sovereignty is comprehensive and final. So we have seen that the decrees of God is a demonstration of his sovereignty. Secondly, God's sovereignty is seen in the control and the authority that he possesses. For God to be in absolute control, he must possess absolute power. For God to have absolute power, he must be in absolute what? Control. Make sense, right? That's what we see in Scripture. Turn to Psalm 93. I'm going to walk through the psalm very quickly. Because my time is quickly running out. Firstly, we see the scope of God's sovereignty. Psalm 93 verse 1. Yahweh reigns. Yahweh reigns. Not Yahweh will reign. Yahweh reigns. That's a statement of reality that is in perpetuity. He reigns and will always reign. No one will overthrow God. Yahweh reigns. He is robed in majesty. Yahweh is robed. He has put on strength as a belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. What an absolute statement. Now here the negation, never be moved, is actually not an absolute negation. So it should probably be translated that it shall not be moved. There is a certain grammatical construction that takes place when an absolute negation is in view. 
translators here has chosen an absolute negation, which I think is an incorrect translation of the idea that it shall not be moved. It's not as strong as never. Why do I say that? Because God is going to create a new heaven and new earth. But what he's saying here is that what God has established, no one can change. No one can undo. Nothing in the astronomical existence can undo or change the course of this world. No asteroid's going to come from out of nowhere and knock us out of course. And every year you hear there's an asteroid coming close to the earth. We are in perpetual danger. We may all die. The sun flares. It's going to destroy half of the earth's population. No. Why? Because God decreed it not to be so. Stop falling for the lie of these quote-unquote professionals. There is one who's in control and it is God. There's so much to say over here. I mean, uh, maybe I should come back next week and finish this off. Because I don't want to waste the opportunity to express the absolute supremacy of God in His sovereignty. Yeah, I think I'll do that rather. <clears throat> Let me go to Acts chapter 4. I'm going to give you one response to the sovereignty of God. It's not good enough to know the sovereignty of God. Now we've only touched it, and next week I'll finish it. Explain it a little bit more. It's not enough to know what it it is, and you don't submit to it. Context of chapter 4, the disciples are asked not to preach in the name of Jesus. They end up in prison, and they are threatened with life, with death. Sorry, not with life. (laughs) Verse 23, notice what happens. When they were released, obviously from prison, They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the nations rage? Just end there. What are they appealing to? The sovereignty of God. What is the context? Persecution. Affliction. Promise of death if we ever find you preaching in his name again. Don't do it. Because you're going to be on the wrong side of history if you do. What do they appeal to? God's sovereignty. You are the one who is in control of all things. You are the one who is in absolute control of all things. Which means what they are saying is, Lord, we acknowledge this is your plan, your will for us now. Look at the end. Verse 27, for truly in this city 
They were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do what your hand and your plan had predestined to do. How did our brother say it? Predestined. I love that. So Western. Predestined to do. What we saw with the death of Jesus is what you determined should happen to Jesus. We know that this is your plan because you are the sovereign Lord. It wouldn't have happened if it was not your plan. And now, Lord, referring back to the one who they reference in verse 23, 24. This sovereign Lord, you look upon their threats and grant your servants what? To continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. What are they asking for? Lord, protect us. Lord, keep us from the government. Lord, take note of these people. Will you wipe them out? Lord, please, we don't want to be in the situation. Strike them down in thunder and make sure that they know you exist. None of that. What do they say? Give us boldness. Give us boldness to speak your word. In other words, help us to remain firm because this is your plan. And we cannot do it without you. If it takes our life, grant us the boldness to die for you. That is what it means to believe in the sovereignty of God. Not to run to the mountains and flee. Not to hide in your room away from COVID and say, Oh, I'm doing it for the safety of others. You do it because you trust in the sovereignty of God. Do you not think that God is unable to preserve us while we are meeting together for His glory from the quote-unquote pandemic? Do you not think that he's able to do that? Ah, oh, but you may infect other people. How many people do you meet on a daily basis? Unless you're hiding yourself in a closet all the time for 24-7. How many people do we meet on a monthly basis? Hundreds, if not thousands, going to the mall. You pass by many. How many of them have incurable diseases? You don't know. Has God not preserved us up till this moment? Do you not think that it is His will for you to get it when you get it? Do you not think that it is His will for you to be preserved from it? If you are being preserved from it, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, then live as if He is sovereign over all things. Stop giving up your faith for fear of death. If God is sovereign, and He is, then whatever happens is what he determined to happen. It is not enough to say you believe in the sovereignty of God. It is not enough to affirm that doctrine while you live as if he's not sovereign. These believers had all the right to say, Lord, please step in and did what you did in the Old Testament. Wipe them out and yet they ask for boldness. Why? Because they know that it is God's will for them to be in that time, that period of history, and suffer for His name's sake. Remember this. 
when lockdown five comes around again. And it will, because there's over 400,000, sorry, 4,000 variants. Variant, Alpha, Delta, Quantum, whatever, is coming. And it's going to shut us down again. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? If you do, then live in accordance with that conviction. Let's pray. Father, you are in absolute control over everything. And up to this moment, you have preserved us and exposed some of us to this virus. Thank you. None of us have died from it. And even so, if some of us do die from it, thank you. It is your will. No, we don't understand how you are able to bring about all these things for your, for your glory and for our good. We don't. It, it goes beyond our human capacity to fully comprehend it. But you don't ask us to figure it out. You ask us to trust you. Lord, and while this world is mocking our conviction and our belief in your, belief in your sovereignty, help us to be strengthened in this all the more. Because you are in absolute control. Lord, may this doctrine permeate not only our convictions, but our character and our response to life. Forgive us for fearing death more than fearing you. Forgive us for failing to be bold and submitting to the government rather than submitting to you and being bold with the gospel. Change our minds, change our hearts, change our conviction that we may be the kind of people that are marked by a faithful devotion to a sovereign God. For your name's sake, for your glory we pray. Amen.